When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. This is The Ruck, the rugby podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times. Well, we finally have a date for rugby's return with the Premiership clubs preparing for a mid-August restart. In New Zealand, it all kicks off this weekend. Super rugby sides will play in stadiums full of fans. But what will the new normal now look like in the Northern Hemisphere? The Premiership clubs have agreed to accept all of Lord Miner's salary cap recommendations, but now the real fight begins over what the salary cap should be. I'm Lawrence Delalio, and joining me today are Alex Lowe and Owen Slot. Gentlemen, good morning to you both. Good morning. Just a, just a quick, I mean, there's obviously a lot to, uh, to discuss and chew the fat over for the, this week's Ruck podcast. So many things happening uh, at quite a speed. How's the speed in the, uh, in the, in the slots household at the moment? We're, we're now into the start of week 12, I think, of lockdown. And uh, I guess everyone's getting just that little bit sort of fed up, really, of, of the same old, same old, really. And we just need some movement forward. Um, I haven't cleared out the shed yet, Lawrence, which is the same thing everyone else did in the first week. So I've still got plenty, plenty of stuff to get through in my lockdown. So my lawn's looking shit, so they've got some work to do on that. So I'm allowed to use that word on this podcast. As my cooking skills have come on this week. I've had a good, good week's cooking. So, yeah, that's where we are. And my wife won some money on the horses yesterday. How much longer have I got on this? So, you, so, you, can, so you, can, you can go shopping this weekend then, or this week, if, you, if you've won some money on the horses. That's, that's yeah, fantastic news. Yeah, yeah. And once again, I think we've, in my street, I think we must have won the award for the house with the most recycling uh, out on our bins on a Monday morning. Uh, the, the, the amount we get through every week is quite extraordinary. Uh, other than that, we're fine and happy. Thank you very much. I'm thinking living in Barnes, Owen, there'll be some high quality bottles there as well. So we're talking champagne, sort of top end gin, that, fine, fine, fine wine. There's so much. There's so much pressure to to to, to keep up with the Joneses that people do come round and check what you've been quaffing, so you check you're not letting the side down. And Alex, how uh, how are you this week? All right, thank you, Lawrence. I haven't had a drink for a month, um, so I'm feeling what? quite virtuous. Yeah, and I've Is also that why so thin. No, that's 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 the black t-shirt and the beard covering up. <laughs> it's my, my new disguise. Giving up alcohol and abstaining in in any situation is is um, is admirable, but uh, in lockdown is 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 possibly one step beyond. I mean, that's 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 seriously impressive. How have you managed to do that? Quite, I mean, are you hiding are you hiding bottles around the uh, house in the garden or something? I mean, what are you doing? No, that that was the trick of old colleagues of ours back down the years. No, uh, I'd, I'd like to say I was being really. Um, virtuous but basically i've been hobbling around for a month i didn't know what it was it turned out i fractured my ankle which i discovered a week ago uh, i don't think it's bad certainly not i was there when you did yours i was nowhere near like that it's just a slight crack but um, anyway it's pretty sore so i've decided to yeah well i well i'm not very mobile it's probably best not to be sinking gin and tonics and, and too many beers yeah, no, probably a good idea. Well, listen, the, uh, we'll soon find out who's, you know, who's injured and who's not because um, 
Harlequins and Wasps are back in training today, I believe. Um, Sale have already resumed their training programme and the rest of the Premiership will follow this week after the RFU and Premiership Rugby finally agreed a roadmap. Gentlemen, as I understand it, there's a sort of a six-phase approach or five-phase approach to, uh, to what's happening here. So for the first time, we can announce that the players have uh, resumed training. I'm assuming that that training is without coaching. In other words, they'll be returning for kind of physical assessments, mental health assessments, various other things. But uh, in small groups, as is the uh, restrictions on the lockdown of, of no more than about five or six, with no coaching, and that's kind of phase one. I mean, I guess, it, you know, it's, it's good news. We're, we're nowhere near New Zealand at the moment. We'll talk about that in a second. But Alex, I suppose that, you know, it's, it's, it's good news. It's the start, at least, isn't it? It is the start, long awaited. Premiership Rugby are quite some way behind government guidelines. Community clubs can actually do more than Premiership clubs are permitted to do at the moment, based on, on government guidelines. Um, and, and the clubs, I think, have just... There, there are lots of documentation that has to be filled in. Um, each player's got to go through a one-on-one assessment and, and opt in to training. They have to actively say, yes, I'm prepared to come back and, and, and mix with, with a couple of teammates. Um, but it's very... Yeah, it's early stages, but it does give us uh, does give us hope that we might see some rugby at some point. And if we, I mean, if we just set out for for all our listeners here, phase one is training without coaches, which we're currently in at the moment, starting today. Phase two, contact training, which is obviously a big a big step up for for, for rugby uh, versus other sports. Phase three will be played, uh, you know, rugby games played behind closed doors. Phase four is rugby games with attended in attendance restricted and i believe phase 5 is is full attendance so i mean Owen, it's you know do you think the do, do you think rugby is is taking a, an overly cautious approach no not really i mean it, it's the whole process has been pretty hard to 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 get going R- rugby is the clearly we understand is the the sport where covid-19 will be most transmissible so it has to be be more careful than the others uh and if they are being slightly more cautious, then and if they, so we're saying if they've been slightly less cautious and had been able to come back a week or two earlier, would that be better? I mean, I don't think it really makes that much difference, to be honest. So let's just let's just get it right. I mean, I think that's that's the point. I mean, one thing I don't really get is um, how come Harlequins and Wasps be back this week, and some other clubs are saying it's taking them a, a whole week longer to um, get the guide, you know, uh, follow the guidelines, fulfil the protocol, all that stuff. I don't, yeah. I don't really understand that, but um, hey, at least it is happening. My understanding was that Exeter and Sale were, were keen to resume, you know, last week, actually, or certainly as soon as possible. I think everyone within Premier Rugby is trying to make sure that they're aligned, if that's not an overused word at the moment, um, and, and sort of all singing on the same sheets. But uh, as you say, there's those that, that feel that they can move forward quite quickly, and there's those that, that possibly are being a little bit more cautious. Um, and, I mean, if we work backwards, the weekend of the 14th, which is a Friday evening, 15th and 16th of August, is the provisional date for the resumption of matches. Guys, any, any clue as to how the, uh, you know, Alex, I saw your piece in the paper about this. Any clue as to how the rest of the season is, is going to pan out then? I mean, are they, are they planning on just playing these one after another? Or I think, yes. I mean, although they've got now the, the, the weekend of 14th, 15th, 16th as their, as their planned return, the next phase is to work out how they're going to do it and so how they're going to structure the season and where they're going to play 
the matches. I think now there's no need for them to shoehorn in midweek matches and force players to, to play twice in four or five days because with the global season conversation seemingly quite far down the line and the next premiership season, therefore unlikely to start until December, January, I'm hearing even March or April, someone was saying to me yesterday, there's no rush now to squeeze this season in. So I would have thought that they will play every weekend from the 14th onwards. So that's nine rounds of of regular season, semi-final and final. There are three rounds of Europe still to play, quarters, semis and final. And Europe wants to have their final in, in October. I think the Premiership final could easily be right at the end of October. And then if there are November tests to be played, then it might roll straight on, on through to that. Um, I, I think the, the initial thoughts of having to, to, to ditch rounds or squeeze in midweek games was, was based on the need to, to start the next season at, a, at its usual point. feels to me now that Premiership rugby know that the, that the whole global structure is going to shift. Bill Sweeney's talked for a while about how the game will look very different post-COVID. And, and he's on the World Rugby Group that's trying to, to thrash out this new structure. So it feels to me like there's no reason why, why they need to rush this season, play it normally, because next season won't start until next year. I think we're um, charging into a historic change in the way rugby is played in, in Europe. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm still not convinced whether it's good or bad, but that's the way we're going and COVID's forced, forced us there. And maybe, maybe it, it, it is a good thing, but, but rugby's almost been forced, as Alex says, to, to readdress the season uh, so we can get next season going. And by shifting, so we, we, this season's already been shifted. So then we're say, saying next season's um, going to have to be shifted. So we're almost shifting into a position where, where coming back will be harder. That's I'm sounding like Shakespeare now. What's that from... Mm. Uh, um, going for be harder than returning or something. I'll, I'll get that quote, but 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 by the end, um, uh, it's from Macbeth, by the way, um, where it's it's harder to undo the problems you've made than than to start again or something like that. Barnsley was on; he'd be able to tell me where I was going right yeah. now. But it does it does seem that that, that rugby is suddenly switching without without really people being get, yeah. given the chance to talk or consult about it. That, that, that the season's shifting. Just so we're clear, and our listeners are clear with what we're saying here next season whenever that might be is now going to shift you know this is not definite but this is on you know seriously being up being debated at the moment the rugby season 21 22 will start in march and will and will finish in november and for god knows how many years as far as we can all remember the rugby season has always started in september and finished in may certainly in the northern hemisphere so that is indeed a a, a seismic shift in our sport, really, in terms of the way it's played, the, the time of year it's played, the impact it has on everyone. You know, would it fundamentally change the game? You know, the, the grounds are going to be harder. The weather will be somewhat different, although the weather is different all the time at the moment. So I think it is, it, it is an incredible move. And as you say, it's been almost talked and debated over many, many years. And, and there's always been people resistant to change. And those people have changed all the time. And People have always found, you know, 10 reasons why you can't move the season. And now that, you know, through COVID and through their financial plight, I think a lot of the unions are now finding reasons why you can move it. And I think that makes a huge, huge difference. I mean, Alex, uh, this is a big deal for rugby, isn't it? Huge deal. It's enormous um, for the Northern Hemisphere. I think I I agree with what you say there, Lawrence. I think there's there's long been talk of, of alignment. 
and, and the need to, to change the structure. The, the problem has always been that the year, the calendar year, the season has been so packed that it's been impossible to halt something and shift it because there's always a game to be played next week, the week after, the week after. Whereas I think World Rugby downwards recognised very early in the lockdown that, that this was a, a unique situation that had been presented to them where, which they had to take advantage of if they wanted to bring in the changes, the changes that they have long talked about. World Rugby have wanted a calendar year season ever since really I think they came up with the idea of this Nations League concept, which would include effectively two international windows, the Six Nations Rugby Championship, kind of early in the year, the October-November window at the end of the year, culminating in a final to, be, to crown the champions of the Nations League or whatever you call it for that year. Um, and if you work from that structure downwards, then the European club game is being asked to move into that new structure. So it would be, yeah, it would be the 2020-21 season seems likely now at the earliest to start in December, but more likely January. And as I say, potentially even March or April, although I'm not quite sure how that structure works and gives enough time to complete, the, complete all the matches. But that is what some senior people are, are, are looking into. And it may be that the first season of it is a bit of a, of a sort of trial run and then it, it, it beds itself in for 21, 22 and, and beyond. But it, it, it's enormous for the game here because it, you're playing, the Six Nations will, will likely be March, April. So fewer horrid days will change the way those matches are played. Club rugby through into the end of August will inevitably change the way those games are played because you have fewer difficult elements to, to deal with in terms of handling and and wind and, and such like, and, and I think it will have an impact. I mean, is this, is this madness, Owen? I mean, is it, I mean, rugby has never gone head-to-head with cricket or, or, or horse racing or all these other sports that we, are, you know, that we like to watch over, the, over those months that Alex is talking about, or is it just inevitable? Or, or should rugby not necessarily worry about the fact that you know, the people who want to watch rugby will, will watch it whatever time of year it's played? Well, well two, two things. One, if, they, if they're not going to start the season till March... And, it, and, and the, our season's going to, and this current season's going to finish in, say, November. Then I'm looking at December, January, February when I'm off. So, so that's one reason for. Really well, you're looking, you're looking at your skiing holidays now, aren't you? Yeah, really, is what that, you're thinking. That, the about. Whole, we're going to get the whole of the winter in the Alps. I, I do slightly think that uh, we should have Jonesy on this podcast. Bless him. So uh, I just read out uh, some words from his column uh, in the Sunday Times on the. <laughs> On this, uh, this very subject, he says, death to summer rugby to the very idea and a plague on top rugby officials who are now raising the shocking prospect. Rugby in summer would look every bit as out of place as cricket in snow. So he's nailed his colours to the mask. Do you know what? I've, I've thought about this so much and um, there are such clear reasons for doing it, for shifting it. And there are also some very clear reasons against it. And I'm not sure that the reasons, I'm not sure how much the reasons are against it are because people maybe like myself are sometimes averse to change but I do think that rugby has a place in the calendar and it's a danger to shift it but um, I know it's fascinating but it just feels like as you said Lawrence this is massive. Well it it is but also I I get the point that the Six Nations has been in the calendar you know at at the beginning of the year and and it's not a lot else that that kind of ruins that and I think uh, you know to suddenly shift it you know it does does make people you know change a little bit but but sport moves on things change used to be four points for a try you know there only there only ever used to be five teams in the six nations and now there's six and and you know things change and I don't think we should be afraid of that I think we should you know look to look to embrace that in uh, in, in 
one way or another. But to be fair, let's park that because it is it is next year. What what I'm more fascinated by is that uh, New Zealand are kicking off this weekend with their Super Rugby sides playing in full stadiums. Now, clearly, you know that is not the new normal in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, let's just remind our listeners that only 22 people have passed away from COVID coronavirus in New Zealand. So to a certain degree, normality can resume. You know, whatever you think of the leadership in in, in the UK, certainly uh, with those sort of statistics, Jacinda, is it Adern, who's been a very capable yeah. and empathetic leader and has taken fairly swift and bold action. So they're playing in front of full stadiums. So at least rugby fans will have something to watch pretty soon. Now, I understand with our, with our Operation Restart, we're now looking at possibly playing in, you know, for the clubs to be able to resume playing in their own stadiums. Uh, there was initially talk about, you know, one neutral venue, would it be Twickenham, would it be the Rico? But uh, I, I believe playing back in their own stadiums, a bit like we've seen with the Bundesliga, is now firmly back on the agenda, Alex. Well, I think, I think one of the benefits that rugby has, has had in, in taking its time is that it can study what everyone else is doing and, and learn the lessons from Bundesliga as, as everyone is. Uh, the Premier League will be back before uh, the rugby season begins by, mm. by quite some way. And, and I think if, if there's a way that, that those sports can, or those leagues can, can operate on a home and away basis, then, then the Premiership should be, and I'm sure will be, um, taking all the lessons from it and, and how they do it. And I think the cost element of, in some ways, it seems like the cost element of using one neutral venue seemed quite, quite prohibitive because at the time they were talking about using the on-site hotels and having to pay for all the teams to stay in the hotels. And, and that, that, that was quite a pricey exercise as far as I can understand it. So I think rugby can, can sit back and learn all those lessons from Germany and, and from how the Premier League are going about it. And, and it's, a shame that, it's a shame that it looks unlikely fans will be in. I know, I know the RFU are, have been asking the government to, to change the one metre, the two metre rule to one mm. so they can get some fans into, into autumn tests if they go ahead. But, but won't it be great this, uh, this weekend to watch Super Rugby in front of full stadium in a country that I read this morning have no COVID cases at all. Yeah. And in fact, I think York and Blues will be a great team to watch over, over the coming weeks just for A, Dan Carter's back with them and B, Joe Marchant is now going to be playing in a, in, in, in a bat line that's got, that's got Carter, Bowden Barrett, Rico Ioane, he's, he's fallen on his feet there. Maybe, maybe in the long run this will be better. I mean, it just feels to me at the moment that uh, we're unlocking faster than people thought we were going to. And maybe by August it will be possible to get some kind of social distancing with inside the stadium. I mean, the, again, you know, we, we, no, one's, no one knows where this is going, but, but we, we're getting a close... As the closer we get, the, the more it looks like things are yeah. things are relaxing. And if they can get some fans in, then A, it will look and sound better. B, it will be economically better for the club. So I agree. I mean, I mean, clearly, uh, Bill Sweeney is now, uh, in his capacity as the CEO of the RFU, has got his got his eyes firmly on. You know, whilst there's other discussions around world rugby, he's looking at these autumn internationals, which are looming. Twickenham's capacity would ordinarily be you know, just over 90,000. I heard him with a comment, I think, sometime in the week saying that a empty stadium would be, you know, would be cost neutral or prohibitive, you know, in terms of the RFU making any money and would be a complete disaster. There's no point hosting the games at all. So he's pushing the government to relax the social distancing so they could at least get half the capacity, somewhere like 40,000 in there, Alex, because I guess that just shows you the, the financial plight that even the mighty RFU 
would would find themselves in if uh, if these autumn internationals didn't go ahead. Uh, I think we're talking tens of millions of pounds of difference based on on the evidence he gave to the DCMS a month ago. Yeah. If if the games are off, I think he's talking about the RFU losing 132 million pounds of revenue. He said if the games could be played in front of a reduced crowd, I'd have to double check my figures. I think he said that would be they'd be losing somewhere like 50 million pounds. It's an enormous difference. So you can see why they, they're trying to put some pressure on the government to, to help them. Logistically, I just don't know how you even do that. I don't know how you can... You, you, in the stand, you can separate people by two seats. You can't separate people... People that don't have their own space inside the, 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 kind of the Twickenham corridors, if you like. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty cramped stadium inside. And certainly the train, the train out there from Clapham or Waterloo or wherever, is, 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 there's no space on that either. So... Um, I think there are some logistic issues for them to, to overcome if they want to get, get any fans in there at all. But it, it just shows how enormously important. And, and in fact, that Lord Miners, who conducted his salary cap report, made a comment about this at the weekend, about how the RFU is so reliant on just a handful of matches to fund everything. And that's the way they do their business. They yeah. sell out Twickenham and they rent out Twickenham. And that's what earns them all the money that it gets distributed. And I guess, uh, Owen, it's, it's um, I mean, obviously, as, as advertised, the Autumn Internationals, not just for the England and the RFU, but obviously all the home nations uh, involve the Southern Hemisphere, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, travelling over. If I was Australia and New Zealand, I'm, I'm, and I've got, you know, very few corona cases, um, I'm pretty sure their government are going to be saying, guys, you, you, there's no way you're travelling to Europe and bringing anything back to, to these shores. So... You know, are we are we going to see a um, a shift in in uh, in the autumn internationals if they do get played? I mean, could we possibly see uh, a sort of a mini Six Nations has been muted around rather than the might of of the All Blacks and, and Australia, South Africa coming to to Twickenham and Cardiff and, and Dublin? Well, that that's certainly the the option if the um, Kiwis and the Aussies don't come. I wonder if you said to the to Australians and the and the and the Kiwis, well, if you come, there'll be some sort of a revenue share if if they would be quite so um determined to to avoid the uh, well, it's fascinating. Coronified England. I mean, with the uh, with the West Indies cricket team, um, you know, coming to to England to play a, t- a Test series, albeit three players have said that they personally don't want to travel, which is perfectly acceptable. But uh, I'm pretty sure that the you know, I, I don't want to be cynical about it, but I'm sure that, that you know the, the sweetener, the carrot, if you like, was probably a slightly better revenue share to get them to come over because the ECB are desperate to to have some international cricket, and uh, you know, it's, it's uh, the irony is that revenue sharing and summer tours have always been or autumn internationals have always been on the agenda and now you know possibly uh, you know as you say they'll be given something that that gives them an incentive to travel i think the australia games fourth which is the one that's outside the window so that that's a really interesting test of them because because that game would have has been arranged outside the window so therefore australia so that is be, a revenue share they'll be charging them a fee and we all yeah. know how rugby australia is struggling financially now that maybe the 500 grand or million pounds that they charge as an appearance fee in that game will influence their decision. I, I, we wait and see. I, I would be surprised if, if the All Blacks come because, as we've just mentioned, New Zealand is free, of, is free of COVID and why would you invite it back in? Listen, we're going to move on to the salary cap. The Premiership Club's 
you know, have all signed up to adopt Lord Miner's report in full. But this is, I guess, where the fun really starts. As we understand it on the ruck, the, uh, the clubs, the owners, CEOs are meeting today virtually to discuss what level of the salary cap should be implemented. Currently, Alex, just remind everyone at, at what it's level? Maximum of 7 million. It's 6.4 million plus credits for England players, academy players and such like. Yeah. So and, and, and obviously, the, and, the, and those marquee players. So you're allowed one overseas marquee player and one English qualified marquee player. So those, those two will also be up for debate. Um, let's just remind ourselves that there's a bit of a split at the moment. And unsurprisingly, Bristol, um, Exeter, possibly Bath um, are quite keen on, um, on keeping the salary cap where it is. Um, and obviously the other clubs... Um, certainly led by the likes of Gloucester, where we've seen a number of departures recently, uh, Newcastle and Worcester. And let's be fair, quite a few of the other clubs are very keen to implement this salary cap reduction. Can you see any resistance? Let's just start with you, Alex. Can, we, can you see any issues as to why this won't be pushed through? We're talking on Monday. The, the plan, the expectation is that there will be a vote at this meeting today. So uh, by the time you listen to this, the answers may already be clear. Although I was told yesterday that there's no guarantee that they'll, they'll reach a point where they can vote. But as for the, the different camps, will, will there be some resistance to change? Definitely. Uh, Bristol have already, vo- they've been already voiced it uh, through Steve Lansdowne, who's very, very clear that the league would be shooting itself in the foot if after 10 years of, of developing, bringing in some of the world's best players, playing in front of bigger and bigger crowds, if they were to then contract mm-hmm. as a business model by uh, scrapping the marquee players and reducing the salary cap, he thinks that would be doing serious damage to, to themselves as a league at a time when CVC have come in with visions of growing the commercial value of the sport. He believes that now's the time to invest uh, and be bold rather than contract. I think that's quite easy for a billionaire to say who, who can fund the club. It's much harder for those clubs who operate as businesses you mentioned Gloucester there, Worcester, yeah. Wasps. And so there will be opposition to the idea of change, but I'm not yeah. convinced there'll be enough opposition. To get this any change through it does require 10 out of 13 clubs to support it. And you mentioned three clubs there who we think are probably in favour of retaining the status quo. Of the other clubs, they're in two different camps. Although they agree on, on change, there are some clubs arguing for immediate change. By that, I mean they want... The players are already taking already being paid 25% less that pay cut was implemented when the season was halted there are clubs who are, who are arguing for the salary cap to be reduced by 25% so down to 5.2 million immediately uh, and the scrapping of marquee players immediately then there are other players who all other clubs who also agree in the need to reduce it but would prefer a phased approach which to me makes a bit more sense because I don't know how you can suddenly say to say Saracens Owen Farrell who was a, a marquee player earning around 750 grand a year let's say we now don't have marquee players so his salary suddenly comes under the salary cap but we're also reducing the salary cap by 25 percent every club will be over it so I don't see how you can do it immediately for me I think the phase if they're going to do it the phase approach is the only way so you allow existing marquee players to play out the contracts that they've just signed so Semi Radraja at Bristol, for example, who, who's only joining on July the 1st, but you just say you can't sign any more and then it phases out over time and over that maybe that same period, three years perhaps, the salary cap potentially comes down in, in stages. It feels to me like 
that is like that's most likely what's going to happen. There was one interesting line I, I, I picked up yesterday, which I don't think, and I'm not sure it'll happen, but it was just an interesting debating point that someone suggested that there are, there are some clubs who want the salary cap conversation to be dealt with in conjunction with ring fencing. And the sort of the scenario that was, that was sort of suggested was if you're a club who spends the whole time looking over their shoulder, being worried about going down, and also therefore probably arguing you, you're not one of the richer clubs arguing for salary cap drop, you might, you might be able to take a softer stance on reducing the salary cap if your business model can receive the, the certainty that there's no relegation pending. Mm. It was put to me that that's really hard to combine the two because the, the, the ring fencing debate is so complicated and it will involve the RFU. It might become more simple, by the way, if the RFU decide that the championship season continues to run alongside the community game and doesn't move to mirror the premiership because if that happens, mm. then you couldn't have promotion and relegation. Mm. And the RFU are pretty clear they they believe the um, championships likely to be become a sort of semi pro league. So, but but it's 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 a much more complicated situation. So I, I'm not saying I don't think necessarily that will happen. But yes. anyway, a long answer to your to your question. I think yeah. I think there'll be some opposition, but I think they'll, they'll I suspect they'll reach a compromise whereby the salary cap comes down and the marquee players are phased out. As Saracens aside, the last couple of years the, the whole thing has been a bit concentrated, and you have had the. the clubs at the bottom being more effective and occasionally taking scouts from the clubs at the top. And it has been just for a while, this anyone could be anyone league. It's been brilliant. So I think we're in it. I think we're inevitably going to lose a bit of that. And I just think that's just, that, that is just going to be the fact of life that, that comes from the whole thing that the whole Corona thing that we're going through. And maybe in a couple of years time, it'll, it'll level out a little bit. I think you need, you need to retain the competitiveness. So you, you don't want to distort it just so it's, Three three wealthy clubs at the top, but we also need to make the Premiership a superstarry competition where 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 <coughs> people will want to be watching it abroad, where you get semi randras coming. So there's a bit of both. But I, I yeah. So who's going to win over the next three years? It's going to be um, Bristol, Bath, Exeter, and I think Sale will will carry on spending by the sounds of things. And then it'd be really interesting to see if say Northampton can challenge with uh, a less aggressive spend, but but a really good setup. I'd be interested to be a fly on the wall whenever CVC meet, meet the um, Darren Charles and Premiership executives because they bought into the league with a promise, with an intention to grow the commercial value of, of the league. I'd be fascinated to know what their view is on clubs choosing to reduce the salary cap and scrap marquee players if, if that's what, what ends up happening. But I'm also interested to know what they have told the clubs about how they believe the, the league can grow commercially because you'd have thought if they if they felt the CBC could help inject two million pounds a year into each club through new commercial avenues, then maybe they wouldn't need to reduce the salary cap. It sort of suggests to me that that whatever the plan is from CBC, it's obviously medium term, not short term. Otherwise, this wouldn't need to happen. CBC see a lot a lot of their gains to be made in um, TV rights and upping TV rights and selling abroad. So so just just like Alex says. If, if the league is suddenly a little bit greyer, then the TV rights aren't going to go up and they're not going to be making their money. So it's not in their interest yeah. at all. Yeah, but also the growth of the game has got to be based on a very strong domestic product. And I'm not sure that the Premiership has, has invested enough heavily in creating a structure that allows for a, for a strong domestic product. I think more money needs to go into the academies. I think more money needs to go into 
making English eligible players stronger. That's exactly what seems to be happening. The shift is happening in France. The, 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 you know, it's been happening in Ireland and the, and the Pro 14 for a number of years now, where they've got a structure where that, you know, their, their domestic rugby plays second fiddle to their European aspirations, particularly for certain clubs. So uh, I think the Premiership have to, you know, the, the, these conversations are not just about the salary cap. They're, they're also about how to create a structure for English rugby that, to your point, Alex, makes makes it more commercially attractive for, for sponsorship rights, for things like TV audiences, uh, to grow the game. Are, are we going to attract new players, to, you know, new people to watch the game of rugby? under its current format. I'm fascinated to learn about ring fencing. You know, does the Premiership, you know, become 13 clubs? Does it become 14 clubs? Just so we're clear, by the way, there is an enormous benefit to owners for ring fencing. If they were to agree to ring fencing, then there's this thing called P-shares, which the each club uh, in the Premiership owns a number of, which uh, guarantees their participation in Premiership rugby, the value of those P shares goes up significantly if ring fencing is implemented. So all of a sudden, overnight, the clubs become financially better off. So uh, there's lots of there's lots of fascinating arguments and debates to come from the clubs, and I'm not sure it's just all about the salary cap. I think there's it's about creating a structure and a competition base that 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 allows these clubs to really grow and develop significantly because. Make no mistake, there's not that many clubs in the Premiership, and uh, you know there's no point having a runaway leader every year if the, if it's not competitive enough across you know a number of clubs, it's not going to be something that people want to tune into and watch. And you know, to your point, Owen, one club can beat the other on any given Saturday or Sunday, but there's only about three clubs currently that can actually win the Premiership. Well, that was a bit doom and gloom, wasn't it? Right now, Lawrence, tell us a joke <laughs> or something. Let's move on to any other business. Some talking points across the last couple of weeks that, that some of you, including myself, may or may not have missed. Sam Burgess uh, gave his views on the Ford family. I'm not talking about the Ford motor cars. I'm talking about, of course, Mike Ford and uh, the participation of uh, Sam Burgess in the Rugby World Cup. Alex, let's start with you. I thought, well, the Sam Burgess interview was the interview that we've all expected was going to happen at some point. He's, he dropped a few sort of hints in, in recent times, just on, I think, a couple of Twitter messages before the, the World Cup last year, in which he talked about people with agendas and selfishness within the squad. I think those of us who were kind of close and, and covering England in 2015 probably knew who he was referring to. Uh, I'm not saying that they were, but certainly his perspective, we, we knew where, who he was referring to. And in his interview, it all came tumbling out that he felt that Mike Ford, who was his coach at Bath, was undermining him because, particularly for that, that Wales game, George Ford was dropped to the bench and Sam Burgess started against, against Wales in uh, standing directly opposite Jamie Roberts, who was obviously one of their... Wells' key physical threats. And, and Sam, Sam Burgess's interview basically talks about how he felt Mike Ford was undermining him. There was a loss of, loss of trust and respect. And so he, that's why he walked out. He, he claimed that, Joe, uh, that George Ford had, had been sulking around the camp after being dropped. And, and he claimed that, that the Fords had demanded that, that George get a chance in the last 20 minutes, suggesting that that was why Burgess was taken off and Ford was, was brought on. England were winning when Burgess was taken off lost the game. It was pretty explosive and it felt like he'd had he'd been waiting to say it mm. um, for some time. It was denied by I think Joey Ford 
George's older brother came out and said that's not, you know, that's not the George that we know. Um, and and in I would say George Ford, in obviously he's four years older, but he couldn't have come across as more of a team man in recent years. I don't think in the way that he's been he's been in and out of that England number ten jersey. He's responded to that publicly very very well. And it, and I don't think Eddie Jones would have, would put the trust in him that he has done if if he saw in George Ford a, um, a selfish player who wasn't prepared to. Mm. To, to deliver for the team. Anyway, it was a it was a fascinating interview, very much from Sam Burgess's perspective. I think he felt he he come out of it and, and and done the thing wrong. I think if you were to read what Stephen Jones wrote on the Times iPad edition and website, you'd you'd see a very opposite perspective. Um, Steve never never agreed with the recruitment or the selection of Sam Burgess, and has given his response to that Burgess interview in in typically forthright fashion. Mm. I'm not sure it probably did told us anything we didn't already know. Um, no. That Eng- England weren't a great side going into that World Cup, and uh, and you know they probably underperformed. They probably they should definitely have done enough to get out of their group. But I don't think that they were. I think there was a lot of issues going on across that across that team. If you look at all the people that have come out of that, you know, thinking about people like Stuart Lancaster, Andy Farrell, etc., uh, etc. Et Many of the players, maybe Sam Burgess himself, I think there's been a huge amount of learning for each and each of them individually, and they've actually all gone on to achieve bigger and better things as a result of you know the adversity that maybe they experienced during that World Cup. At the time, we Ooh. reported the arse out of this story. I mean, we, yeah. we we wrote on and on about how how Sam Burgess had been uh, such a divisive person for the for that World Cup campaign, and maybe that wasn't that maybe that wasn't completely his own fault. He didn't come in intending to divide it but the whole decision and and the ramifications of it and, and then as he explains that the fallout from selection they, they just cut the whole thing in half and and, yeah. and, we, and we, we the media wrote about this over and over again and the bloody england team complained about it and then sam himself appears on james haskell's uh, podcast and talks about it you know we we said this from the start and they've just and they've just finally corroborated what we were reporting from the start and for which England got very cross with us for doing. I think also, yeah. um, Slotty, the, where, where Burgess was absolutely right was, was when he talked of agendas and disharmony. Um, and, and, and as you say, they, they all got very cross with us at the time. And yet Eddie Jones came out and, and after England blew that lead against Scotland, he said in the bowels of Twickenham, not an hour after the final whistle, the ghosts of 2015 are still haunting yeah. this team. Um, Absolutely. He, he got psychologists out to the England World Cup training camp over in Italy and it opened up so many wounds that, in Eddie's own words, he thought the England 2019 World Cup campaign was, was going to go off the rails. There were punches being thrown, as we know. So there was significant disharmony and, and, uh, and division in, in that squad. And, and a lot of the way that, that certain players behaved during and after... Um, was still lingering three and a half, four years later. Well, gents, it's been a wonderful addition of the Ruck yet again. So many different talking points, the salary cap, the, the operation restart. I actually just need to watch some rugby. And as usual, New Zealand, who have been leading the way in rugby for as long as I can remember, are once again leading the way. So um, thank goodness that rugby kicks off this weekend, albeit super rugby, and we'll be playing in, in full stadium. So that's what I'm looking forward to, just watching a, a decent game of rugby and actually seeing... You know what the impact of of a breath of fresh air, a little break, uh, a renewed enthusiasm, and a, a renewed motivation will have on on the players and coaches uh, of New Zealand. So, uh, listen, gentlemen, many thanks to uh, Owen Slot and uh, and Alex Lowe. If you've not heard it yet, by the way, 
make sure you check out Alex's brilliant interview with Joe Thokana Singer. And to do that, you need to subscribe to The Ruck on Acast, iTunes, and your usual podcast provider.